Luke chapter 20, uh, we'll start in verse 19. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity or their hypocrisy, you could say, and said to them, show me a denarius, whose image and inscription or on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her and in the same way the seventh died, leaving no children. Finally the woman died too. Now then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. Then Jesus said to them, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? While all the people were listening, Jesus says to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues, the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be severely punished. Father, we bow before you today and we thank you for the Bible. We hide your word in our hearts that we might not sit against thee. We thank you for this book that's inspired by the Holy Spirit and gives us an accurate record of who Jesus is, of our sinful condition, of the answer in Calvary where you died for our sins, the resurrection 
Thank you, Lord, for the Bible. I ask that the anointing of your Holy Spirit would flow through me now. Would you open our hearts, open our eyes. May we see Jesus for who he is. And may we live our lives accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Philip Johnson, uh, not Philip Johnson, our friend who was our youth pastor here for a long time and now is uh, the senior pastor at Grenada. But Philip Johnson was a professor at UC Berkeley for many years. He died uh, a little while ago. But I picked up one of his books uh, many years ago called Darwin on Trial. And what Philip Johnson does is look at the theory of evolution and look at the evidence for evolution and kind of go underneath the surface and make some decisions about well, what really led to this conclusion, okay, uh, of evolution, of natural selection, and from these single-celled organisms over millions of years, we would get animals and that we would get human beings from this whole process uh, of evolution. Philip Johnson uh, grew up in Illinois. Uh, by his own admission, he said, uh, I, I was too smart for my own good. Kind of a little smart aleck as a kid, very smart. Uh, I see Lynn Bryan nodding her head back there. And when I was thinking of this, I was thinking of Michelle Bryan. Isn't that terrible? Well, I was in school with Michelle, and she was one of those types that you'd hear something once and take a final and get an A on it. And it just infuriated me. I love Michelle, she's a dear friend. Uh, we would spar about all kinds of different topics when I was a kid, but she was like Philip Johnson, just too smart for her own good. Well, Philip grew up Johnson and went to Harvard and got an English degree, uh, later went to University of Chicago and got a law degree, and uh, at one point uh, got married, but then later went through a divorce. And that divorce kind of brought him to the end of himself and he became a believer and gave his heart to Christ wound up at UC Berkeley, and began to see that the whole environment at Berkeley was totally drenched in natural selection. We came from monkeys. Evolution is true. There is no God, blah, 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 blah. And he started with his legal, brilliant mind diving into that subject and saying, uh, you know what? There's a lot of presuppositions in this evolution debate. Now, what do we mean by that? If I'm looking at science or looking at evidence of natural life and biology, whatever, if I start that discussion with this belief in my mind, there is no God, that's my belief, that's my presupposition. Now I'm gonna go to the evidence and start looking at cells and mutations and natural selection and whatever. My presupposition that I already believe colors the way I look at that evidence. Are you with me? I've decided ahead of time, there's no God. We've come from evolution. We come from monkeys. Random selection, the Big Bang exploded and all this fell into place, and that's my presupposition. Now I'm gonna go look at this evidence, and what is going to happen is your science is not gonna be just following the facts. Your science is gonna be guided by what you already believe. Now stay with me for a minute. I'm not trying to be overly theoretical here. But Philip Johnson started to say, you know what? The research that scientists are doing is not open-handed even research 
because they've decided ahead of time there is no God. And that is coloring everything they did. He is father, Philip Johnson is basically the father of the intelligent design movement, which basically Christian scientists have said, look, there is no way that all the order and the definition and the design in the universe came from a random explosion. It doesn't even make any sense. If you were ever a kid and lit off a cap, anybody have caps when they were young? Okay. Well, you put about 20 of them together and you get a real great explosion. I know from personal experience. And when you're done, you have smoke on your fingertips, okay? And you go, wow, that was stupid. I shouldn't have done that. But then, of course, you go back and do it again, okay? What am I saying? After those caps explode, you look at the ground where that cap, roll of caps was. There's a hole there and rocks have flown indiscriminately in every direction. There's no design, there was just an explosion. And all those rocks fly, and it's the same way with this belief, which does not make any sense, that there was a random explosion millions and millions of years ago, and everything fell into place, and now we have this brilliant, phenomenal design in all of creation. So Philip Johnson said this in Darwin on Trial, it doesn't make any sense, and all of their research is guided by the presupposition there is no God. Life is an accident. When we die, that's the end of us. We've come from monkeys, okay? It's all from this random explosion. And if you believe that in the beginning, you're gonna come out with the conclusions that agree with what you've already decided. And that's not science, so they claim. Now, we have here people that are attacking Jesus, they're questioning Jesus, they're asking him questions, and it's not honest, scientific, shall we say, or intellectual inquiry, because they've decided ahead of time, Jesus is a quack. He's not the son of God. He's here to destroy the law of Moses. Okay, we know his father and mother. He, there can be no divine origins behind this person. He surely cannot be the son of God. That is their settled conviction. Just like a scientist at Berkeley who says, there is no God, we came from monkeys, life is a random explosion, and whatever happens, happens, and when we die, that's the end of us. People have those presuppositions. The Pharisees had those presuppositions about Jesus. So did the Sadducees and others. And Jesus repeatedly through the Gospels conveys to them that he is the word made flesh, that he's God in, in, in present form, okay? And people looked at him, some responded in faith because they said things like, we've never heard anybody speak like this man. Peter responded in faith because he saw Jesus still the storm and said, what manner of man is this that the wind and the waves obey him? So all through the gospels, okay? But the Pharisees and the Sadducees were hardened in their unbelief and they were convinced we need to kill Jesus and get rid of him. So with that thought in mind, look at verse 19. It says in Luke 20, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately. Okay, so this is their intent. So if they've decided ahead of time, we want to get rid of Jesus, we want to have him arrested, you can look at their questions and say, they're not honest questions. They don't really want facts. 
Okay? They're just trying to trap him and to catch him. And I've told you over the years, uh, I enjoy the study of apologetics, defense of Christianity and whatnot. When I first became a pastor, people would come with me with this dispute. And, you know, why is there suffering? And if God is good and, and just all kinds of things. And I would try to find them answers. I realized after a while that some people didn't really want answers. They just wanted to dispute. They just wanted to argue, okay? I could give them every bit of information possible to give proofs of Christianity and they would still not believe. And after I realized, I looked at them and said, you know what? If you want to be a Muslim, go be a Muslim. See how that works for you. You want to be a Hindu? Go try that, see how that works for you. You just want to live for yourself and for fun and pleasure and power and money? Go ahead, give it a try. Now, I didn't really mean that because, of course, I want them to come to Jesus. But I realize they're just playing games with me and trying to poke fun and argue for argument's sake. And so I would really, well, you know, try that and see how it works. Okay? And over the years, I've lost track of how many people debated with me about Christianity, said it's not true, I don't like it, get away from me, you know, whatever, and run into the same people in hospital beds 10 years later, dying of cancer. And they're like, hey, 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 come here, come here, come here. Yeah, yeah, you, come here. They suddenly wanted to talk because they realized they were going to die. And you know what? All those other movements give no answer to the riddle of death. None. No hope. We were talking in Sunday school earlier today, and I was sharing about a friend who I left anonymous and will continue to remain anonymous. But he was sharing with me that he was coming to the end of his life, and he had no hope. He's done well in business, okay? He's set for life or whatever. But there was an emptiness in his face and I'm not kidding you, I almost wanted to hug him and say, Jesus is real. And he has an answer for the hopelessness in your heart. And since that time, I've shared the gospel with him a hundred times, not a hundred times, two or three times. Okay, and he has not quite taken the bait yet. Okay, but I'm going to keep sharing it. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the only way to have hope. So we have this answer here, this uh, uh, issue here of priests, scribes, zealots, Essenes. It's not on your outline there, but you can see the, uh, 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 interestingly enough, these teachers of the law in verse 19, because they're afraid of the people, in my translation, it says in verse 20, they sent spies. In verse 21, it refers to spies. In other words, they don't even have guts enough to ask Jesus themselves these questions. They pay somebody, no doubt, and say, go in our place. Drill Jesus with these questions. See what he says. Maybe we can catch him in, in, in an argument. On your outline there, okay, it has Sadducees, okay? And Sadducees were focused on service in the temple, okay? So put the word temple there. Now, why does this matter, okay? Sadducees came into being uh, uh, when the temple was destroyed, okay? And the Babylonian captivities, they took uh, the Jews into captivity, okay? Uh, they took care of service in the temple prior to that time. But after the temple was destroyed, your job is gone, okay? 
So they came back into effect in Jesus' time, okay, because the temple was uh, rebuilt, okay? And uh, so and the next one there, the Pharisees focused on the study and interpretation of the Torah. When we say Torah, we're talking about the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, okay? So the Sadducees focused on service in the temple. The Pharisees, they focused uh, on the interpretation of the law and really breaking it down into every teeny little minutia of every aspect of life. So they were constantly questioning Jesus. What about this? What about the Sabbath? What can we do on the Sabbath? How far can we walk on the Sabbath? All kinds of things, okay? And they're basically missing the forest for the trees because Jesus came to die on the cross. And he was the fulfillment of all those Old Testament laws. And after he died, he said, it is finished because the price was paid for sin once and for all. And we receive that by faith. But if you start off with a presupposition, Jesus, you're a quack, and we're looking for a way to get rid of you, they're never going to see that. And actually, that's exactly what happened. It's not on your outline, but if you care to, you could write down the word zealots also. Okay, they were revolutionaries. Uh, the Essenes, okay, okay, uh, they wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, and they preserved them, and they were actually found uh, in, around 1946. Okay, and many of those Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed exactly with the book of Isaiah and other books in the Bible. Folks, we have a credible, authoritative book here. It's not a fairy tale. It's true. And it's an accurate record of who Jesus is and how we can be saved and the purpose of life. And it's confirmed again and again uh, in so many uh, different ways, okay? So why is this important? In verse 20, we have spies being sent by the teachers of the law. Verse 21, okay, they question him further, okay? Verse 21, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality but teach the way of God. Isn't it interesting? You're a critic. Your job is to discredit Jesus. So what do you do? You started off with some buttery compliments. Do you ever talk with somebody that likes to argue? And they started off by, you know, you're just an amazing person. I so appreciate that. Uh, and they give you, and after a while you start thinking, hmm, when's the other shoe going to drop? And it does. But I have a real problem with this. Okay. It's an agenda driven by malicious intent, okay? And this is what Jesus is uh, uh, at the center of at this point. So what does it say in verse 22? Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now they lay this web of deceit, okay? This trap for Jesus because this issue of taxes was huge at that time, okay? You had to pay your taxes, okay? And that was by Roman law. So if Jesus says, you don't have to pay your taxes, he can be arrested and taken to stand before a Roman governor and be tried, okay? If he says, pay your taxes, all the Jews and the Hebrews are going to be furious with him because they hated the Romans. They were God's chosen people. What are all these Roman soldiers doing here? Why are we submitting ourselves to this Roman empire? They hated taxes, so whatever Jesus uh, said, somebody was going to be mad at him. So what does he say? 
First of all, verse 23, he saw through their duplicity or hypocrisy or lack of integrity. They were giving the appearance that they wanted information, but they had another agenda in mind. And Jesus saw through that. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by that. Do you know that Jesus sees every heart on the whole planet immediately? Now, the Bible tells us this, okay? John uh, 2.24, it says, Jesus knew what was in each person. He sees your heart. He sees my heart. He sees what's going on inside of us. Now, I don't say that to scare you or have you sneaking around like, oh, you know, whatever. You know what? I find this rather refreshing, frankly, because rather than the charade that we sometimes play with each other, that everything's fine, praise the Lord, just th- things are getting better and better, uh, 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 we can come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm a mess today. Now, maybe you're not comfortable with that, I don't know, but I want you to get comfortable with that because the mercy of God is constantly inclined in your way. It even says in the Bible, God is for us. God is for us. Would you say that phrase with me? God is for us. God is not mad at you. He is not bringing up your past and say, you know, you really screwed up back here. When are you going to get it together? The mercies of the Lord never ends. He has an endless supply of love and grace that he is extending towards you. So when you pray, you don't have to put your best foot forward. You don't have to put on your Sunday best and fix your hair if you have any hair to fix. You can just be you. I really think God wants authentic relationship. And if you're having a bad day and you're disappointed about something and you feel hopeless and you've had a horrible loss that makes no sense, I would encourage you to bring that to God and say, God, I am upset. And I want to tell you something. The presence of God will come into that moment. And he's okay with that. And the cross is enough. And the blood of Jesus washes away every sin. And if you read the book of Psalms, you're going to see grief and discouragement and despair and hurt and pain that the psalmist pours out to God again and again and again. And God's not up in heaven going, you're really being irreverent. I just can't believe you would say that. You know what he's doing? He's drawing close. There's a verse of scripture that says that God draws close and he is close to the brokenhearted. And for 30 years, I've sat with people on my office at different occasions and heard horrible things and said, you know what? God was and is right there with you right now in this moment. Okay, that's true. And the presence of God comes into those moments, okay? So we can be real and be honest, and God sees everything about us. I'd encourage you to read Psalms 139 and John 4, other examples of God, of Jesus seeing, of the Father, of the Spirit, seeing everything that's going inside of us. So what does Jesus say next in verse 24? Show me a denarius. Okay, what's a denarius? It's a Roman coin that was used at that time. The interesting about that coin, okay, is that on one side it declared the divinity of Caesar Augustus. Okay, 
Now, emperor worship has been a big thing, or was a big thing in the Roman Empire, and actually it's been a big thing all throughout history. America was founded because we don't believe in the divine right of kings. Okay, the people that left England said, you are not God, you are not divine, we're going to go to America and start a new form of government. But it's very convenient for emperors and kings to say, I am divine, you must do what I say. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Ridiculous, okay? It was big in Caesar's time. It was big uh, in the British Empire. It's been big all throughout history. And if you can't get them to believe that, that you're God, just load a bigger gun. Okay, this is the way oppressive governments work. So Jesus, being God in the flesh, okay, holds up a coin where Augustus is saying, I am divine. Can you get the irony here? It's interesting. But he holds up that coin, okay, and what does he say? Show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God, what is God's? Look at your outline there, the second section. The questioners of Jesus did not have honest intentions. Okay, I think we've already established that. Number two, the denarius had inscriptions about the Roman emperor's divinity. Can you imagine Jesus laughing internally about that? Okay. Augustus says he's divine. Okay. It's just a charade. But he holds that coin up, okay? And the last one there, and I'll just summarize this section with this quick statement. Jesus said to pay taxes and give lordship and give God lordship in your heart. I believe that we are supposed to pay our taxes. Anybody get their statement from the tax preparer yet? I get mine, it came a couple weeks ago, and I just look at it and I go, ugh. I have to dig through my filing system and find this paperwork and fill this out. And when I put that thing in the mail with a check for my tax preparer, I feel like 10 years have just come off my life, okay? I don't like paying my taxes any more than you do, okay? But Jesus' instruction here in summary fashion is be a good citizen, pay your taxes, okay? Now Caesar and Tiberius were terrible people, okay? All throughout the ages, there's been terrible leaders. Just look in Washington and Sacramento. You'll see them today. Ooh, that's a little scary. But I think Jesus wants us to be good citizens, to pay our taxes, to spread the gospel, to be salt and light, even when leaders are corrupt. Okay? I think that's, he's called us to that. And the further point here is, you know what? Jesus, I think, is more interested in your heart than your tax money. Okay? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Pay your taxes. Give to God what is God's. What is God's? You, me, my heart, my resources, the years of life that he gives me, whatever they are. What is he saying? It's all God's. Whatever you think you've got is only on loan. I don't care how hard you work to get it. 
It is God's blessing. It is, he's put that in your care for a time, okay? And if Jesus is Lord in your heart, okay, you're gonna pay your taxes, you're gonna give generously, you're gonna love other people, you're gonna put the needs of other people ahead of yourself. You're not gonna be a narcissist like everybody else in this world that's like, hey, it's all about me. Me, myself, and I. What was that pop song years ago? What have you done for me lately? Thankfully, I've forgotten who wrote that, okay? But that was a belief system, and it is a belief system because people are sinful and they live for themselves. And you know what Jesus says? You give your life to me. I wash away your sins. You become my son or daughter. Now serve and live for others. And it says in Proverbs, he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. My friend Tim McNames was talking about him and Judy helping a neighbor recently, okay? And, and this neighbor, I guess apparently, inferring from Tim's story, is kind of a cranky, unhappy person. But they felt like, God, you want us to help this person, okay? They came away and somebody else said to Tim, well, you know what? He would have never helped you. And Tim said, you know what? I answer to a higher authority. Well said. We answer to a higher authority. Our Lord and Savior Jesus, who died on the cross, who rose from the dead, who's coming again. He is my authority, and I want to serve him. And when I die, I want to hear him say, you know, Drew, well done. It's the only thing I'm living for. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Doesn't mean I did everything right. Doesn't mean I handle every situation perfectly, but the blood of Jesus washed away my sins and he's changed my life and he's real and I'm going to live for him to know him, to walk with him, to reflect his love in this broken world that we live in. Let's go to the next section. Look what it says in verse 27. Some of the Sadducees, okay, another group, okay, uh, after Jesus deciding ahead of time before they ask the questions, we want to get rid of you. Interestingly enough, Luke tips his hand or tips their hand by this interesting statement. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. I wonder what these knuckleheads thought on Easter morning. This is my belief. There is no resurrection. The end of life, when I breathe my laugh, that's the end of it. I have a friend in Fort Jones I've been trying to reach out to, and he actually believes when my life is over and I'm died, that's the end of everything. I'm just done. I no longer exist. Put my body into the ground, it'll rot, and that's the end of me. And I'm looking for an opportunity to say to him, you know what? You will stand before a holy God when you breathe your last. And there is an afterlife and this is not the end of everything, okay? And I want to share that with him one of these days when the Holy Spirit uh, opens that door, okay? So the Sadducees, verse 27 of Luke 20, they say there's no resurrection. That's their presupposed belief before they come to Jesus. Teacher, okay, and we have this long scenario that's almost ridiculous. It comes from Deuteronomy 25, okay, and in Deuteronomy 25, it talks about a widow who loses her husband and has no children, and the brother of her deceased husband would have a responsibility to marry her and have children with her so that she wouldn't die destitute. 
It was a basically a way, without a safety net as they call it today, for a widow to survive. Because if a woman lost her husband and had no children, she would basically be forced to beg, okay, to survive. So Moses and the Moses Law had this, uh, this system or this uh, safeguard for those widows, okay? So these Sadducees, again, not wanting an honest answer, malicious intent towards Jesus, okay, say, well, what if that one dies and he marries another one? What if that one, I mean, seven times, okay? I have sat in classes in Bible college and seminary and heard people go down these hypothetical things. And one guy I still remember today, I finally said, can you stop it? I have paid that professor to hear what he has to say, not you. But everything was this extreme, bizarre, hypothetical thing. And it's like they just want to listen to themselves talk. Okay? And that's what the Sadducees are doing, okay? So what does Jesus do, okay? He jumps to the point of the whole thing and then says this in in verse uh, 34. The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. Okay, there are cults that believe when you get to heaven, you're going to have the same wife here as you had on earth. It's not true. It's a convenient thing that they can build a whole teaching on, okay? I won't mention any names, okay? Uh, uh, But uh, uh, that's not the way it is in heaven, okay? We have marriage here on earth. When we die, we go to heaven if you know Jesus as your personal Savior. But he says this, verse uh, 35, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come, circle the word worthy. If you're concerned, none of us are worthy. Jesus Sacrifice on the cross makes us worthy when we receive that by faith, okay? Okay, so just to clarify that, okay? You can read the book of Romans and get more information uh, on that, okay? Look at verse, uh, 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 let me go on. Uh, those of us, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They can no longer die for they are like the angels, okay? God's children, So Jesus is saying, beyond this life, there is a reality. There is a spiritual realm, okay? Do you know how many people live for today like this is all there is? Okay? Do you know in the end, it's this. It's absolutely hopeless. Now, they say there's no God. They say that there's nothing after the dead, okay? They say, you know, life is what you can make it right now. Uh, eat, drink, and marry. Be married for t- tomorrow we die. All kinds of things like that. Friends, you know how horrible it is to look into somebody's eyes and realize they have no hope and they do not know where they're going to go when they die. It's absolutely awful. And I have grabbed people at funerals and other settings and said, do you know what? Jesus is real. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. And you can know him personally and have hope beyond this life. It changes everything, okay? Jesus rose from the dead so we could have life. No, he goes on there. Look back what it says. Verse 37, but in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What are we talking there? Look back at your outline there. The Sadducees questioned Jesus with a hypothetical scenario. 
Marriage is on earth, the second blank, but not in heaven. He is the God of the living, not the dead. The Sadducees are mistaken about the resurrection. Now, what is Jesus saying when he says he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Remember that old Amy Grant song she sang many years ago? El Shaddai, El Shaddai. From age to age, still the same. This is what we're talking about. The theological word is immutability. If you have a mutation in a biology class, okay, the cells come together and occasionally there's an abnormality and a mutation happens and that organism changes. Do you know God is not subject to change? I find this incredibly comforting. People change, cars change, fashion changes, politicians change, the weather changes, families change. Change happens everywhere all the time. And it actually sometimes makes my head spin about change. Okay? Do you know how amazing it is to get up in the morning and talk to the God who never changes? Age to age, still the same. This risen God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was worshipped from Abraham, was worshipped from Isaac, was worshipped from Jacob, and is worshipped today. And in heaven, thousands and millions of angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we get to participate in this divine and eternal orchestra and live for something beyond today. There are times I can't even watch television because it's so stupid. Whether they're advertising the latest medication, the latest car, the latest clothing, whatever it is, it's just absolutely stupid and foolish. I want to say, God, I want to talk to you. I want to hear what you have to say. I want to find my comfort and hope in you. And this is what Jesus is trying to convey to these Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. Fools. There's nothing beyond this life. What a hopeless, awful way to live. You can write these references down. Malachi 3.6. Psalms 102, verse 25. Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Okay, let's go to this last section and see what it says. Verse 41, Jesus has been absorbing all these questions. And then it's like he says, okay, that's enough. Okay, you guys are just listening to your own hot air. Now I'm going to ask you some questions. Then he says to them, verse 41 of Luke 20. Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. David calls God Lord. How then can he be his son? So Jesus throws at them a seeming contradiction. And the best way to answer this is I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1 for a moment. 
See what it says in Luke chapter 1. And we're going to look at the dual identity, I think is the best way to say it, of Jesus. Okay? Luke chapter 1, verse 32. Let me start reading verse 1. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes on the Virgin Mary, impregnates her with this divine eternal person, Jesus, who limits himself to flesh and a, and a fleshly body. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. So there we have Jesus being identified as the Son of the Father in heaven. But then he switches. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Okay? He's the son of the Father in heaven, yet he's named in this genealogical line, okay, from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament because of his earthly, fleshly human nature. Now, some of you are checking out on me right now, but hang with me for just a second. Friends, how can we possibly define and understand Jesus? I mean, we're finite beings. We get hungry, we need sleep, we live, we're born, we die, you know, we're limited by finite space and time. Jesus is not. So when we read the scriptures, we get metaphors that help us understand who Jesus is. In the book of Revelation, he's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Is Jesus a lion? No. Lions are in Africa. They roar. Everybody's scared of them, I'm told, Okay. But Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's described as the root of David. He's described as the bright and morning star. He's described as the good shepherd. He's described with endless metaphors all throughout the Bible. And you know what? Because we walk by faith, not by sight, Paul says we're not going to get the whole picture until we see him face to face. That's what I'm living for is seeing him face to face and saying, Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. In the meantime, we're dealing with a mystery that's beyond comprehension because we're talking about an eternal person who came in flesh and blood and walked on this earth and was hungry and cried and needed sleep and yet perfectly revealed the Father here on the earth. I got to quit before the children's church people run in here and start a riot. Let me give you these last things. In the Old Testament, Messiah uh, and New Testament, Messiah is the Old Testament word for Christ. Christ is the New Testament and it means anointed one. Next blank, Jesus indicates his human and that's supposed to be divine. Okay, Jesus indicates his human and divine nature. Read those verses there and you'll see both sides of Jesus. Psalms 110 is about David declaring the Messiah as his Lord, not his son. Okay? Read the genealogies and you'll see that. Psalms 110 puts the religious siege of Israel in a predicament. Okay? And the religious teachers refuse to accept the divine nature of Jesus. Why? They have a presupposition that Jesus is a quack and he needs to be eliminated. When you talk with Jesus and say, Jesus, show me what to do, 
Be careful because you might hear something you don't want to hear. Serious. You have to set your presuppositions aside and say, Jesus, you saved me from my sins. Here's my life. Show me. Speak to me. Guide me by your Holy Spirit. Okay? Would you pray with me? Mike Thomas, can you come? Jesus, continue to open our eyes to the reality of who you are. We have a very limited view, Lord. We are finite, we are human, we are creatures, and we're bound by time and space. And oftentimes we are bound by our presuppositions, by what we've been through, the way we think life works. And Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Open our eyes, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. May we fall down before you and worship and give our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.